0: This is The Big Question, where we do our best to answer questions from young disciples at Grace Presbyterian Church, and to be at peace with the mysteries that we can't explain. I'm Pastor Mark, your host, and in this episode we have questions from Tim, Stephen, Lydia, Sam VR, and Susanna. First we'll tackle a few serious questions, then we'll look at this episode's big question, And we'll wrap things up at the end with a few fun questions. Let's start with our serious questions. Our first question comes from Tim, who asks Why did Jesus have to stay in the desert 40 days and nights just to be tested? Well, Tim, as we saw at the beginning of Matthew's Gospel, after Jesus' baptism in Matthew 3, the Holy Spirit leads him into the wilderness where, in Matthew chapter 4, after 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus is tempted by Satan. Now, three times Satan tries to get Jesus to sin, and each time Jesus triumphs over temptation until finally the devil departs, having been defeated. Now, your question is, why did Jesus have to endure this temptation, and why did it have to be 40 days and nights? Let's talk about the the first part of that question first. So the reason that Jesus endured this temptation seems to be that for Jesus to establish his authority over the realm of the devil, he needed to confront the devil in this way. He's coming as the promised king, and there's already someone who claims to be in charge, that's Satan. So, it makes sense that Jesus would prove his kingship by overcoming this false king, Satan. Now, after this, whenever we see Jesus encounter demons, they always seem to tremble in fear, which makes sense because he's already humbled their master. Now, what about the second part of the question, the 40 days and 40 nights? Well, the length of the wilderness time corresponds to some significant timeframes in the Old Testament. The flood in the days of Noah, where the earth is basically washed from its corruption, lasts 40 days and 40 nights. Then Israel's time wandering in the wilderness after the Exodus is 40 years before they can enter into the land of promise. Now, this encourages us to interpret Jesus' time in the wilderness in light of these earlier events which prefigured it, in other words, which pictured it before it actually happened. And now Stephen asks, Can we fear man and God? Ultimately, Stephen, the Bible answers this question in the negative. No, we cannot fear God and man. At the end of the day, if you fear man, you won't fear God. And if you fear God, you'll be free from the fear of man. As we said in the last episode of The Big Question, fear in this context means reverence and awe, basically worship. You serve the power that you have reverence and awe for. Jesus says you cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve God and man. Instead, you must choose who your ultimate authority will be. Now, there is more nuance here than it may sound like, because Jesus also says, when you've done it unto the least of these, you've done it unto me. In other words, the way you serve God is by serving one another, because all human beings are made in God's image, and serving them is a way to honor him. So if you fear God, you'll serve your fellow man, but you'll serve for God's sake, not out of fear of man. If instead you fear man, ultimately you'll be serving yourself. When we act out of fear of man, we do it so that we will benefit personally. We do it for selfish motives. Fearing God makes you selfless. Just as you can't be selfish and selfless at the same time, you cannot fear man and fear God at the same time. Ultimately, one will have to come first. So put God first. Now it's time for the big question. Our big question this week comes from Lydia. So let's give Lydia a round of applause. Here's Lydia's question. Is it impossible for God to sin? The short answer, Lydia, is yes, it is impossible for God to sin. To understand why, the first thing we need to do is ask ourselves, what is sin? Well, let's see how the Bible describes sin. The simplest definition is probably the one that we find in 1 John chapter 3. If you look at 1 John chapter 3, in verse 4, John writes that sin is lawlessness. Basically, any breaking of God's law counts as sin. That doesn't just include doing things that God forbids. It also includes not doing things that God commands. This is why James writes in James chapter 4 verse 7 that Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. So, it's a sin to do things that God forbids, and a sin not to do things that God commands. You can break God's law by what you do and by what you don't do. And everyone is guilty of this. In Romans 3, verse 23, Paul writes that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In that phrase, he adds an important thought, that when we break God's law, whether through action or inaction, we fall short of God's perfect holiness, his glory. The Westminster Shorter Catechism summarizes all of this by saying, Sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. That's the answer to question 14, what is sin? Want of conformity just means leaving out some action that has been commanded by God. And transgression means doing what God has forbidden. There's more that we could say about sin than this, but this gives us a good framework to follow as we think about whether or not it's possible for God to sin. Now, to figure out whether God could sin, we need to ask whether God could ever break his own commands. Could God fail to do something that he has commanded? Could he do something that he has prohibited? Could God fall short of God's glory? If the answer is yes, then God can sin. If the answer is no, then God cannot sin. Now, listen to what I just said. God cannot sin. Does that sound funny to you? One of the things the Bible teaches about God is that God is all-powerful. God can do whatever he wants to do. If there's nothing that God cannot do, then how could we possibly say that God cannot sin? It's simple, really. We have to ask ourselves where the law of God comes from, because God's law doesn't come from the same place as man's law. When human rulers pass a law, here's how it works. They try to think about the way things should be. And then they come up with a command that if you followed it, would make that ideal the reality. So a king or a legislator might think, for example, hey, in a perfect world, people would have a house, a car, a ring, whatever, and they wouldn't have to worry about someone else coming along and taking it away from them. So let's pass a law saying no one can steal other people's stuff, and they would make theft illegal. Now, the people who make the law are not perfect. Maybe those people themselves would be willing to steal under the right circumstances, assuming they could get away with it. But when they think about the world the way it ought to be, even those flawed people think stealing is wrong. But this isn't how it works for God. This isn't the way God's law originates. God isn't a corrupt human being who needs to think about how the world ought to be. God made the world, and it's supposed to reflect His glory. The world is supposed to be what God says, in other words, and what God says flows from who God is. God doesn't pluck rules out of the air. His commands come from his character. That's why if you keep his commands, you will be like him, and if you break them, you will fall short. To say that God cannot sin doesn't impose a limit on his power. Instead, it acknowledges that God is who he is. He is perfect and therefore doesn't do anything that isn't perfect. He is holy and therefore never falls short of holiness. His law reflects his identity, and so he does not break it. Sin separates us from God because it's not like him. That's how we know that by definition, God never sins. That means that no matter what God does, we can know that it is right. Everything God reveals about himself in Scripture is perfect and righteous and loving. If we don't agree that it is, the problem is how we define those things. The problem is never God, because God is all those things, by definition. So yes, it is impossible for God to sin, and that is a wonderful thing. Before we close, let's look at a few fun questions. Our first question comes from Sam VR, who wants to know, did you carve a pumpkin this year? No, Sam, I didn't. In fact, I haven't even attempted to carve a pumpkin since I was a kid. I was never very good at it even then. Now, in our family, Lori is the artistic one, so whenever there's a pumpkin that needs carving, she's the one who does it. And she always does a great job, too, much better than I could ever do. This year, she carved a very classic-looking pumpkin who was so cute that we burned the candle in him for a couple of days into November. The cats, as you can imagine, were very suspicious of this glowing pumpkin, but I liked having him around. And now Susanna wants to know, If you could pick one extinct animal to exist, which one would you choose? That's a great question, Susanna, but to be honest, I'm not sure which extinct animal I would pick. I know it definitely wouldn't be a dinosaur, though. The last thing we need is a bunch of pterodactyls or T-Rexes running around outside. I took a look at a list of extinct species, and I discovered that a lot of them are rodents or wolves or animals with horns, basically scary stuff. I wouldn't want to bring back anything that had a chance to bite me or stab me. So looking at the list, I think I'm going to go for the Caribbean monk seal, which was a seal that used to be found in the Caribbean Sea, but is believed to have gone extinct back in the 1950s. It couldn't fly, it didn't have horns, it didn't even have hands, and although as a seal it could still bite me, I guess, or maybe crush me under its weight if I fell asleep on a beach and it managed to surprise me, the fact is, I don't like the beach, and I don't plan to go to the Caribbean anytime soon, so I think I would be safe. Now, this is always assuming that unicorns aren't real. Although they have horns and they could stab me, if it turned out that unicorns were extinct mammals instead of mythological creatures, then I'd have to go with the unicorn as a favor to kids everywhere. That's all for now. Thanks for listening to The Big Question. Remember, if we're going to find the answers, then we have to ask the questions. Never be afraid to ask and never be satisfied with easy answers. The truth will stand up to scrutiny. Until next time, keep asking the big questions.